Hello, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. COVID-19 is affecting the mental health of our children. Many of us are worried about how our kids are dealing with the weight of this pandemic and the sudden unexpected changes impacting their day-to-day lives and the clinical services that they may have been receiving. To learn more about how we can support our children's social, emotional, and mental health during these trying times, today I'm joined by Dr. Mario Capelli, clinical psychologist specializing in working with children, youth, and young adults. Dr. Mario is a senior clinician scientist at the Ontario Centre of Excellence for Child and Youth Mental Health, an adjunct professor, School of Psychology and Department of Psychiatry, University of Ottawa, and Department of Psychology at Carleton University, clinical investigator at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute, and clinical director and child psychologist at Capellian Associates. Thanks for joining me. Uh, my pleasure, Jody. Uh, so, so let's let's get started with the with the situation we're seeing. Obviously, our kids are normally uh, attending daycare programs and going to school, and that's not happening uh, today. Uh, do we have a sense how kids are doing in isolation, and you know how this might be impacting uh, their developmental needs? So I think there's a couple ways of, um, or a couple sources of information that really kind of guide our thinking. You know, right now we don't have typical evidence that you might have had um, uh, if it was, you know, other types of events. And so we don't have surveys on kids' mental health. We, we're not sure exactly how they're impacting their day-to-day life and where it's impacting their day-to-day life. Um, we don't have any self-reports and things like that, you know, that you normally would be using. What we do have is a lot of reports from families, from kids, from um, providers, and, and our, just our general sense of how kids are coping. And so what we're missing is, is some of the sort of empirical evidence. Um, but I know that we're doing some work and I know others are doing some work, so hopefully we'll have you know, some of that that data to help better guide how kids are coping and what services they're going to need uh, for those that are struggling more than others. And what are, you know, typical signs of uh, a child struggling? What, what what should parents maybe be looking out for? Well, I think some of the signs are probably no, no different than what we normally would look for um, uh, with kids. So if, if the child is suddenly becoming... Um, even more withdrawn, if they're becoming sad, if they seem to be worried, if they're not, if they're having difficulty sleeping, if you notice changes in appetite, if you notice changes in irritability, um, if they're just don't seem their regular self. And parents now have, you know, 24 7 observations of their kids. They can really get a sense of, you know, some of those, you know, some of those signs. Typically, kids are away at school or at daycare or with their friends. So you may not always. You know, see those signs, but I think now that they're at home and you're with them 24/7, you're more likely to 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 really be able to to notice those changes. Many kids were already uh, under some form of clinical care or support. What's happening today? How has the transition to virtual gone, or has it happened at all? So let me back up a second, Jody, and let me just, because uh, I think there's really, uh, before we talk about the types of services that kids are receiving and how they're receiving those services, let me 
just readdress or maybe just take a step back and talk a bit about kids in general and sort of their developmental needs and how COVID-19 and social isolation, physical distancing and or social distancing and physical distancing has impacted them. Uh, and also think about uh, the kids that present with already, you know, some, you know, mental health challenges or other clinical needs and how this has also affected um, um, those needs and the services that they, that, that they require. So if you think of just the typical kids and our, our own children and, um, and you look at the different ages that, that they're at, each one of those different age groups are going to experience different demands and different, uh, and different challenges. So if we think of our school-age kids and, and you think of the impact of COVID in terms of you know, their day-to-day life, it's quite different than if we're looking at our, our teens or our young adults. So for school-age kids, you know, we're, we're concerned about well, how has it impacted their day-to-day activities? How has it impacted their friendships? You know, for a lot of kids that age, where is it that they really, uh, you know, school is their source of friendships and interactions with friends. They do less of the, um, you know, after school and weekend and less, much less social media. You know, they also do a lot more outside of school, structured, you know, school sports and hobbies. So looking at the impact of those activities. If you if you start thinking our teens and you imagine for teens where their social life and their friendships and their romantic relationships are so important and how has you know how's COVID affected um, you know those uh, you know those parts of their lives and, and certainly their drive for independence so they spent tremendous amount of time either outside the home you know at school or with friends and and uh, and tremendous amount of time on, um, you know, their social media platforms or gaming platforms, and suddenly they're thrust to having to spend 24-7 in the home with their parents, with their siblings. And finally, if we think of our, more of our young adults and, you know, up to the age of, I think, your mid-20s, you know, how has this affected, you know, their planning for their future? How has it affected their part-time and full-time jobs, their own sense of autonomy, which is different than independence? And also their partners. So it's no longer about, you know, a romantic relationship. Their partnerships may be much more significant, profound. So, so we want to kind of think about those needs, and we want to think about how, as parents, you know, are we being mindful of how COVID nineteen are affecting those needs, and are we able to sort of help our children um, through this difficult time so that they're still able to meet some of those sorts of needs. And so, uh, it, but when we sort of start thinking about the, the clinical populations that, you know, I work with and my colleagues work with, now we're sort of looking at more, you know, real specialized care and, and some real specific needs. So, you know, we want to think about, you know, our, you know, the challenges that some kids face depending on their own personality. So some kids are more social and some kids are more shy, more introverted. Some are really easygoing and some are more challenging. And, and depending on, you know, some of those kind of personality variables and how they interact with things like mood and anxiety disorders or behavioral difficulties, you know, are also going to play a significant role. So if um, if you look at, um, you know, what our sense is, and I think what a lot of um, a lot of my colleagues are saying, you know, are reporting as well, is that for some kids, particularly those who present with some of the mood and anxiety disorders, some are coping quite well. You know, they're adjusting and they seem to be relatively happy. And the question is why? Well, I think it's 
Um, it's probably pretty easy to answer. You know, we've just taken away, you know, one of the major stressors in their lives, right? We School is no longer stress for them. And, you know, and school can be, there are different aspects of school that can be terribly stressful for some kids. Some, it's about academics and learning. Some, it's about social aspects. Uh, some, it's about having to wake up early in the morning and get ready for school when they're, you know, their, their own biological clocks, you know, make it challenging. But for some kids, COVID-19 um, has had no impact on anxiety. And, for, and so if, you're, if you imagine a child who presents with you know, an obsessive compulsive disorder, COVID-19 has very little to do with that presentation and how we would, would help a child and their family cope with, uh, with that type of disorder. We often forget about kids who present with behavioral uh, difficulties. So, for example, our, our children and youth who have ADHD or some of the more challenging oppositional children. But for some of our, some of these youths, they're really coping far worse. You know, we've we've eliminated a major source of distraction for them. They can't leave the house. They can't go outside. They can't go, you know, skateboarding or doing other activities that they normally would release some of that energy. And, and there's a significant increase in tension and conflict, particularly since parents and these young people are spending 24-7 together. And so uh, it becomes much more of a challenge for parents. Um, we sometimes forget our children who present with autism, you know, and, and for, for kids with autism, the change in routine has been significant. You know, it's, it's hard on all of us, you know, the fact that we've had to readjust our routines and our day-to-day -day activities, but for kids who have autism, that, that really, you know, um, routine is so fundamental. The, uh, you know, the, uh, the upheaval has caused a lot of these young people tremendous, tremendous stress and, and, um, and challenges. One and not a lot of outlets, right? You know, uh, it's not like uh, you can, uh, you know, if you have a young child, you can go to a trampoline park or, as you say, you know, uh, you know, if, if a child likes to skateboard or those types of things, um, you know, I think I think to to a large extent, um, uh, some of the uh, you know a lot of the coping mechanisms that the children might might rely on are actually kind of dangerous right now because of COVID nineteen. And again, it kind of interacts with their age. So, for example, with with the younger kids, that's terribly you know challenging for them because they don't have those those outlets, and and parents aren't able to easily provide those outlets. And not everyone has a huge backyard with a trampoline. You know, they can't go to the parks. They can't go to the places that they normally would go to hang out with. And sometimes it's the park. Sometimes it's the school in their neighborhood. You know, the uh, the playgrounds in those neighborhoods. So they're really really stuck. And, but for other kids, you know, they start spending even more time on their social media. So, for example, that's the concerns we often, I often get from parents, right? Is that they're, you know, kids already were spending, you know, far too much time. We all agree on that. But now with, you know, school not being in place and, you know, regular wake-up hours are no longer, you know, um, you know, necessary as, you know, kids are spending even more time on their social media and their gaming. In some ways, that's, you know, that's that's been a protective factor because they've been able to stay connected with with uh, with their friends and able to do the, the activities they love to do. So it causes the parents tremendous anxiety and worry that what's going to happen after the, you know, these measures are uh, are no longer, um, you know, no longer, uh, you know, in play. So, uh, what are the kids going to be able to do to, you know, to get back to regular routines if they're spending all this time on their social media? So you have, 
you have really, you know, differences in terms of how kids are, um, you know, how COVID-19 is impacting them and what and what they can do to cope and what parents can do to help them cope. And you're right, you know, you know, the fact is that there isn't much for them to be able to, to do to release some of that, uh, you know, or release some of that energy or access more healthy ways of managing it. You know, then there's the... Uh, the other group of kids that we we sometimes also forget are the kids that we call our, uh, our concurrent uh, disorders, and these are children and youth who present with both substance use and mental health problems. And and, uh, and for and for those kids, again, you know they um, they really are struggling because they do have you know their you know some of their substance use is significant, and they you know they expose themselves to risk because they still want to get a hold of the substances that they use and hang out with the friends that they share substances with. And, and it's, um, it's incredibly scary for parents and, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and for us, right. But it's a, um, it's, and, and I think this has been a real, real challenge. You know, uh, a theme, uh, that's really cut across, um, all of the discussions I've had uh, with clinicians, and uh, I'm hearing it in your comments as well, which is, you know, many of the government policy responses um, uh, to date have been very broad in application. Um, uh, but there's this need to very quickly start looking at the differential impacts uh, on different groups. And, um, you know, and we're seeing some signs of that. Um, this isn't necessarily, you know, it's not a criticism of government per se, but how do we, how do, when we, when we put our policy hats on, how do we try and zero in on either offering supports um, or um, uh, targeting uh, different types of benefits to ensure that we're, there's not additional harm being done uh, with children uh, who have some of these mental health burdens uh, during this time um, of quarantine. So I think um, you know, Jody. The um, you know clearly the, the response by our um, you know by our public health and our, um, and our um, you know our government you know was targeted where the, the need was most most you know important at that time. So I think we all recognize that. That where they put their attention is needed, to, but and, and but over time we've seen you know some real movement to, to some of the uh, some of the other areas, including you know kids' mental health. So um, just the other day, for example, Health Canada launched a new uh, a new resource, a new web-based resource uh, for young people and adults to access services um you know kids help phone has been there all along and they you know and, and a lot of folks have been you know, a lot of young people have access kids have, you know, help phone to um to access services i think where we've really fallen short and where i think we need to be thinking of is where do we go uh post-pandemic and i think where we really fell short um was um and we were unprepared and, and I think, um, and not just unprepared in terms of the large buckets or the large institutions or the large community agencies, but also all of us, you know, individual and small practices and all the other folks that provide uh, mental health care in the community, is that we really were unprepared to deal with the pivot from face-to-face -face services, which is essentially the, 
vast majority of services that are provided, you know, to virtual care. And we just weren't prepared. And I think it's, it's, it took a significant amount of time, you know, to get to a place where we were able to provide some of those specialized services. And there were so many things that, you know, as, as, as we sort of started to peel away the layers and looking at the things that needed to be done, you know, things that we normally would not even have thought of. So, you know, it, uh, you know, there, you know, how do you let clients know that the offices were not closed? Well, that wasn't clear in the beginning. And in fact, if you take a look at what's deemed essential mental essential services, so different regulatory bodies are still considered, you know, different uh, professionals are still considered to be essential services. So, psychology and the College of Psychologists and all others, you know, we're still considered to be an essential service, although, you know, we you know, are asked not to provide face-to-face, you know, services because of, of um, you know, the, the risk of infection, and we have moved to a virtual platform. So it wasn't very clear which offices would remain open, which offices would close. Yeah, sure, over time it become, you know, became more evident, but how did, you know, how do we let our clients, how do, how do these individuals, professionals, let their clients know that, uh, they would, they would, you know, that their offices would be closed. How would you find out, you know, finding out which clients actually wanted to continue in care versus accessing, you know, care through a virtual space? People wouldn't know which virtual platforms, you know, should be used. They didn't understand what the uh, what the rules were based on the regulatory bodies or, or you know, our privacy and health information um, rules. And they didn't know how to obtain consent, whether consent was necessary or not. Um, we weren't prepared to think about things like the actual impact on clinicians. And, you know, we've been trained to provide, you know, face-to-face care and providing virtual care is different. It requires, you know, a different level of focus, you know, and it can be more exhausting. You know, we didn't. We weren't prepared in terms of how to access our clinical records. Not not all agencies or hospitals with electronic health records. Some are still paper based. And how do you access those clinical records? How do you ensure that you protect the clinical records from working at a home office? How do you provide supervision to our trainees and to our junior staff? So we really weren't prepared to um, in the beginning to. Uh, you know, to be able to to shift care from face to face to virtual, and I think if you take a look at what we've done in the last month, it's been an incredible transformation. You know, right from the individual practitioners to lead agents, you know, these larger community mental health agencies and 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 uh, in hospitals, you know. Things like weight, you know, walk-in clinics have moved from, you know, face-to-face walk-in clinics to being set up as virtual walk-in clinics. So we've seen the shift. And I think, you know, most providers and most of us um, would have benefited from being able to access, um, you know, in a, um, you know, some of those services and some of those, um, you know, some of those platforms you know, much easier. And, and I think, um, you know, providing some financial support to folks, having to purchase some of those platforms, which they didn't have to be able to, it wasn't necessary before. And having those, you know, some, having some of those funds available, you know, would have been really helpful. 
So I think you know we've uh, we managed to to really change things, and that, but then I think some of this might be really positive, right? Because now a lot of folks are are able to provide you know care in a virtual you know platform, and for some families and for some you know youth, this is great. They don't have to come to your office. Some you know like being at home and you know getting online and chatting. You already have a relationship with them. They're really comfortable doing that. We don't have to worry about snow days and ice days and storms. You know, we can connect. And, and families are saying, it's great that I don't have to go home and pick up my youth and work early to pick up my youth to bring them to your office. We can, you know, he can just connect with you or she can just connect with you or we can just connect with you. And so uh, I think the real big, big positive in all of this is that uh, we've opened up this, you know, this, this new pathway to care. In a, in a meaningful, meaningful way. We've always talked about it. We've always known it's been there. We just haven't used it to, to the extent that we've been using it now. So it's been tremendously more, um, you know, it's just given us another platform. And I think I think a lot of youth and parents are going to really take advantage of it. And I think uh, for us, it's a, um, it's a great way of, of knowing that we are uh, making accessibility services easier for these families. Yeah, my understanding is, I I just wanted to ask you, you know, that generally, and this is a very general statement, so forgive me for that, but generally speaking, that the health outcomes related to virtual um, mental health care uh, are quite good. Well, I I think, you know, one of the, uh, and again, one of the nice things about uh, one of the silver linings in this is that with more and more folks being, you know, offering um, you know, virtual space care is that we'll actually be able to even do more, you know, research on this, and it's not becoming, it's it's not, uh, you know, it's not it's, it's not so foreign. The evidence is pretty clear. Like, you know, there's lots of really good work out there that shows that, you know, virtual care uh, does work. You know, there there are training programs like the Echo program, which is used uh, to to train providers and and you know on. Um, mental health care as well as other types of care using virtual platforms and uh and so we know um it's uh you know it does work it gets trickier and for some things so i think uh it is harder um and you know in the beginning with new clients and there are some things that we simply can't do in mental health and, and need to be done so for example we it's very difficult in to do psychoeducational assessments using virtual you know, space. So some things that clearly, I don't think it'll ever get to the point, you know, maybe it will, hard to know what the future looks like, but it certainly is a lot more challenging to be able to do some of those things on a virtual platform. And, you know, one of the things we're hearing um, in the acute uh, care sector is that uh, people are hesitating uh, to reach out for clinical help unless it's COVID related, that they're just trying to put it off, you know, to uh, post pandemic or, or at the very least a, a post lockdown period. Do you think we'll see, you know, a spike or, or a surge in, in children's mental health issues and people reaching out to the system once lockdown measures are lessened? Oh, Jody, I think, you know, that, that's a great question. Um, it, we all recognize and we've all seen a reduction in services um, uh, in, uh, in mental health. And, and it's across the board. So one of the things, for example, I'm involved with is care, um, the mental health care 
uh, of kids who present to our emergency departments, and I'm part of a Canadian network, and I'm also part of an American network, and there's a, you know, there's an ongoing discussion online in terms of what we are observing. So the numbers of kids presenting to emerge departments for mental health concerns is, you know, we know that it's probably down at least 50%, if not more. So uh, we, 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 we've seen that. And I think we'll, um, I, I can't tell you the exact number because really no one has the exact number right now, but we know it's significant and it's well over 50%. Um, here's what I'm concerned about. Um, I'm concerned that um, there are there are children and youth who were on our wait list prior to the pandemic that are still on our wait list that uh, will will be on our wait list post pandemic. There are children and youth who uh, we were providing services for that have chosen not to use uh, the virtual space for you know number of reasons and have opted to be put on the wait list and re you know re-engage once face-to-face services are are open again there are new referrals that are that are that are that we're accepting uh, that are currently being waitlisted there are children and youth who normally would have been referred and are either waiting you know post-pandemic or waiting to see their family physician, um, or, um, you know, there's been a fragmenting of services. So that fragmentation of services, so the typical child goes to a family physician, the family physician then refers the child to the hospital or community agency or someone else for care, or kids are identified in school, uh, you know, with some concerns and then then are referred on. So those kids are, you know, there's that fragmentation of services there. And so we're, we are missing, you know, though my worry is that we have this huge number of kids that um, are going to require services uh, come post-pandemic. And how are we going to be able to, you know, um, be prepared in a way that we can meet, you know, their needs? And we haven't even talked about, you know, kids who present with significant learning difficulties and disabilities who would normally have been assessed, who aren't being assessed currently and aren't going to be assessed. And those kids, those same kids who post assessments, you know, the schools would have been, you know, would have been developing educational plans for them and they'd be in place. Now, those, you know, those are all waiting and the kids. And, and so these kids are not going to be entering school in September and, and experience you know, not getting potentially the educational support that they would need, not being identified with their needs. And so we have this, I fear, you know, a great number of kids presenting with a variety of problems that are currently on the wait list, will be increasing the wait list, uh, and coming in that we're not prepared to deal with. And, uh, And a lot of those kids will be presenting with significant mental health needs. And so, um, you know, and we're we're not going to be able to increase the number of folks that are able to provide services. So I think we need to be starting to think about uh, things like uh, our work days, and and are we, you know, come post pandemic, are we going to have to start thinking about moving 
um, you know, having to increase the number of, of hours that we do on a week to week basis, you know, when maybe 40 hours a week isn't going to be the practice for a little bit. Well, we may have to be prepared to do 50, 60 hours a week. We may have to be prepared to work on the weekends and, and having to make, you know, uh, ha- having a, um, to, to, to do things that we normally would not have done and have put aside some of our own personal needs and family needs. So in some ways, whereas our other colleagues in healthcare right now are, you know, sacrificing tremendous personal, um, you know, personal and family needs in order to help, you know, in our medical and physical care. I think folks in mental health are going to have to be prepared to do similarly post-pandemic. So it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, with COVID-19, we're, we're, we're trying to flatten the curve of transmission. But as we're flattening the, the curve of transmission of COVID-19, there's this other building curve of uh, kids' mental health issues. And so we need to be thinking about surge capacity, um, you know, both in terms of, you know, the human resources side and, you know, uh, and making sure that the, the virtual um, platforms uh, are there or or just adding hours to, to in-person visits. Am I, am I understanding you correctly? I think you're absolutely right. You know, Julie, I think, that um, a lot of the work that you're seeing now is, uh, and like e- even the uh, the portal that Health Canada, you know, just put out a couple of days ago. And I think I just I looked at it. And it's a really nice portal, by the way. And and I'd be glad to share that, uh, you know, the the, uh, the website address and, and the other uh, and the other services and, and that folks are providing. You know, we are web based and. Um, uh, just tips and things like that. They're really, really wonderful, and they've done. And I think we've done a great job of, of being able to get some of that material out. But I think, you know, post-pandemic, the real issue or the real concern is that is at a health service and at a systems at a health systems level. And I haven't seen yet, and maybe you know, it's still we're still early, uh, but I haven't seen any real meaningful discussion. Uh, in terms of how we're going to be able to deal with, with I think the mental health surge, you know, post pandemic, and that's a that's a worry of mine. I'm sure it's a worry for for many other folks. Absolutely, and so just to you know, so Wellness Together is the uh, federal government website that has mental health resources for both adults and children. Uh, kidshelpphone.ca is also a great resource uh, for kids and parents and jack.org for um, for young adults uh, also has uh, really great services. So, you know, one of the things uh, that's been uh, a particular interest to me is, you know, everyday citizens uh, have become quite focused on health data, you know, as it, as it relates to COVID. Are, is there any similar kind of dashboard around mental health and mental illness and that, that shows wait lists, whether it's for uh, kids uh, with autism or wait lists for um, uh, CBT therapy? Is there any of that data out there that, that that you know, citizens can take a look at and start thinking about what those curves look like. 
Well, I think um, it's a yes and no answer, Agility. First of all, you know, we, we um, you know, most of the major institutions do collect, you know, service utilization data. So, you know, I think they're, um, you know, taking a look at what the trends have been in the past bit, I think has to be done. I'm not sure who is doing it right now and whether it's currently being done. I would suspect that, that some, you know, the folks are going going to be looking at that i can tell you that for sure um one of the things that we're going to be looking at you know in my role at the ontario center of Vector shelter youth mental health and some of my discussion with some of our other colleagues and the various uh, agencies that we are going to start looking at some of that utilization data and that we are starting to, we are going to start looking at can we make some projections based on what we anticipate would be you know the numbers because we have a a general idea in terms of the number of kids who present on a month-to-month basis in terms of new referrals and and uh, where where that's at compared to the drop. So I think we can start looking at that, um, and I think it's going to be happening soon. And like I said, like I know we have we have some some discussions already being planned. So I think you know that that will happen. And I'm not sure what's happening in in the various governments, you know, and the various ministries. I'm sure that. They probably have some of their folks looking at it. I haven't seen any data out there yet, so I, you know, I think that's where the answer is. I don't know. I think um, one of the uh, one of the things that we are asking youth. Um, so I, we, we you mentioned at the very beginning, Jody, in terms of some of the research that's being done. So, for example, we have a COVID nineteen mental health service a survey of youth and young adults and parents that we're doing here in Ottawa, and including my colleagues. And I'm just. Uh, there's Dr. Ashley Radomski and Paula Cloutier and Pranima Sundar and Kathy Page and Bill Gardner. So this is a project that's funded through the Ontario Centre of Excellence as well as the Shield Institute. And what we want, we're interested in in um, getting a better sense of of what kids' current mental health is, what they see as their current mental health concerns, whether they think that they're going to need services post-pandemic, uh, whether they think that they're coping. We also want to get a sense of their own, uh, you know, feelings about their future hope and their own resiliency. And we're uh, we're doing it over time. So we're going to have three waves of data. We're, we're actually launching, it's a, uh, it's it's actually being launched through social media and through other e-communication channels. So we'll, and there's three waves of data. The first launch is later this afternoon, and then we have two more waves of data, each about a month and a half apart. So we'll be able to to look at changes in uh, kids' mental health and their expectation for mental health services. So that's going to be kind of hopefully that'll help to also inform the existing utilization data. So kind of pulling the various sources of information together to help us to think about what are the needs and how can we plan for those needs. So I think, you know, um, I, I can't imagine, um, you, you know, that we are simply going to go back to, where, to what we were doing pre-pandemic. I think there's going to be a transition point, you know, post-pandemic where, I, where we're going to see a surge. I know, and, and, and Jody, even in our practice at Capellian Associates, you know, half of our kids are on our wait list. You know, half of them are being seen, you know, face to face. But we already know the first thing they're asking is, you know, you know, let us know as soon as the office opens. We want to we want to go back. And part of the stuff we're doing in the meantime is we're emailing, you know, some of those folks that are waiting, saying we're not sure when the office is going to be open. Are you sure you don't want to engage in, 
in in some of the face in some of the virtual you know work that we're doing. At the same time, we're we're getting those new referrals you know for for services where folks are asking to wait, and I think well I. I don't, I'm not sure if our practice is an exemplar, but I would think that is probably very similar to what other folks are seeing and are going to be prepared to deal with. And I'm hoping that there is some, at a systems level, some support, you know, for this, um, you know, and, and there's going to be some, and there has to be some economic support, you know, for the larger agencies, you know, how are they going to be able to fund providers you know working maybe 60 hours a week when their budgets are already pretty pretty limited and and how are you know where where are those sources of um of, of money going to come from and so we need to prepare for that well i think preparation is definitely the uh the the theme of uh of 2020 uh thus far you know that we've also heard a lot of how we have misstepped on some of those preparations. Mm-hmm. You know when it's coming. You know when it came to dealing with, you know some of the, you know the policies that have to be put in place because of the pandemic. And I think again, I hate to see us do the same thing when it comes to our mental health care. You know, post pandemic, when we kind of know what what it's going to look like. You know, and we may need more data, and we. But we have a pretty good sense. And to sort of wait until the 11th hour to say, well, we should have done things differently, uh, I, I, I think that's a real, um, you know, that, that would be really unfortunate. Well, and we'd have to, I mean, you know, so many uh, people aren't coming with, with like an entirely full bucket of energy to this either, right? Uh, one of the things I often remark with people about this pandemic is that it's both a sprint and a marathon. Um, and, yep. you know, uh, it's it's very difficult to uh, maintain your, your sprint speeds, you know, over a marathon distance. But um, I think it's important uh, that uh, people understand that um, even, you know, it, you know, when we get to a point uh, where we're feeling better about the transmission rates um, of COVID-19, there's still going to be a lot of health concerns uh, to be managed, as well as, you know, economic uh, ramifications as well. So, so, so we're in it for the long haul. So, before I let you go <laughs> with that really upbeat <laughs> message that I just laid out, um, you know, what, what, what. what what do you hope to see over uh, the, the next few months in terms of, you know, indicia of, you know, uh, support for, for children's mental health, any type of policy interventions, or what's your advice to us, you know, as parents um, and, you know, other types of relatives to young kids? What, what, what should we be advocating for? Well, I think... Um, you- you know that's a that's a that's a pretty big question, Jody. You know, and um, you know at a, at a policy level, and, and you know it's it's sort of just being prepared and thinking about how are we going to be able to you know ensure that providers and agencies you know are equipped to be able to deal with with um, kids as they're coming through our front doors and our and, and our or online, you know, come post-pandemic. And, and and I don't think there's going to be, you know, I think there's going to have to be solutions that aren't 
that are um, that that aren't one size fits all. I think there are going to be some you know regional needs. So depending on the population in the region, each one of those things are going to look a little different. I think for parents, you know, um, it's going to be for particularly for parents with kids that present with more vulnerable needs. It's going to be a real challenge in ensuring that um, you know that we that we that we have services in in place and you know that helps the parents themselves because this has been a very very difficult time as parents not just as adults but as parents um, at the same time i think you know maybe i'll maybe i'll end on a more positive note jody is that we do not underestimate the resilience of children and youth do not underestimate the resilience of young people and i think you know sometimes when we face challenges and we face challenges as a community you know we actually you know, grow stronger, and, and and we realize that we can face challenges, and that we can, you know, together, you know, deal with these challenges, and and we can support each other, and even for kids, knowing that they've, um, you know, that hey, they've spent all this time with their families and with their brothers and sisters, and they've uh, and they've gotten closer together, and so there's lots of positive stuff that can come out of it as well, and I don't want to underestimate that because it's really easy, you know, for folks that. You know, like myself, that, that work in you know in mental health to, to to spend probably a disproportionate time worrying about needs and not thinking about strengths and and, and I think um, a lot of kids and a lot of families and, and and teachers and others that work with young people are are going to really come together with the strengths that they've acquired through this. Well, uh, we're three I hope and that's a little months. more positive. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. And, you know, we're three and a half months into 2020, and there can be zero doubt about our capacity for change, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Dr. Capelli, thank you so much for your time, for, for uh, sharing your, your insights and uh, increasing our awareness around the, the policy issues uh, uh, centered on our children's mental health. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Jody.